to the Word of God this morning. It's been a few weeks since I preached in here, been away, and so I've been looking forward to getting back to normality for me again and uh, getting into the Word of God. So come with me, please, uh, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Matthew's Gospel, 16th chapter. And just read a few verses together, reading from verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Amen. Of all the questions that Jesus ever asked men while he walked on earth, I think that this has got to be the most profound the most penetrating, the most powerful, and by far the most important question of all. Who do you say that I am? How you answer that question is absolutely crucial. Nothing will affect your eternal destiny more than giving the answer to this question. There is no room for equivocation, There's no room for error. Hello? There are many wrong answers, but there's only one right answer. And so before Jesus asked that particular important question, he prefaced it with another question. He said to the disciples, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Opinions were greatly divided then, of course, as they are greatly divided now on who... What, who and what Jesus actually was and is. Very, very important that we know the answer to the question. And so the disciples answered. They said, well, some say John the Baptist. Of course, when John the Baptist burst onto the scene, uh, he was a very unique individual indeed. The message that he preached, the clothes that he wore, the food that he ate, the place where he lived in the desert, all marked John out as someone who was very, very different. He did not dress in long flowing robes like the scribes and Pharisees. He dressed in camel hair and a leather girdle about his waist. He did not dine in the finest restaurants in Jerusalem, yet locusts and wild honey. Didn't live in the posh part of town, He lived out in the desert place. And so he was different, unique, unusual. His message was hard-hitting. He was very strong against sin and very strong about repentance. And multitudes began to follow John and be baptized in the Jordan. And not only that, he gathered around him many disciples who were greatly impressed by this Strange man with this powerful message. When Jesus burst onto the scene, he also made a dramatic impact. Multitudes began to follow Jesus, seeing and hearing the miracles that he did. He too had many, many disciples around him. And he also, like John, stirred up the religious folk. And although his message was one of love and forgiveness, yet he preached repentance like John. And also, even though he was very forgiving, yet he did not go easy on sin. In fact, he was quite hard on it. And so, it's easy to see why people thought, well, this is John the Baptist. And also because in chapter 14 of Matthew, uh, we have the incident regarding Herod. It says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. 
He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John saw, uh, because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. And you know what happened then, of course, uh, uh, Herodias' daughter, uh, how that she then danced before Herod, and he was taken by that. And he says, I'll give you whatever you want. And uh, her, sorry, Herodias, Herodias, her mother said, uh, well, we want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And of course, he was executed. And so he was afraid that this was John the Baptist come back from the dead to haunt him, as it were. And of course, that word would spread. And uh, so it's easy to see why they thought that. And then they said, they said, some say it's Elijah. Well, the Bible says that John did no miracle. But Elijah certainly did. Elijah did some tremendous, mighty acts of God, the like of which the world at that time had never seen. This is the man that caused the rain to stop in heaven for three and a half years. This is the man who did supernatural signs and wonders. And of course, when Jesus came along, he too did many mighty miracles and signs and wonders. He was the one, you remember, who walked upon water, who calmed and stilled the stormy sea, the one who opened the blind eyes and the deaf ears and made the lame to walk and the blind to see and cleansed the lepers and even raised the very dead. And so it's easy to see why they thought this was Elijah had come back. And then others said, well, some say Jeremiah. Perhaps they saw uh, the tender heart of Jesus, who was compassionate, who wept over the city of Jerusalem the way that Jeremiah did, the great prophet. And so again, it's easy to see why some thought that this was Jeremiah. Or simply, they said, one of the prophets. And of course, Jesus spoke prophetically. And he acted prophetically. And he prayed prophetically. And so again, it's understandable that they simply thought, well, he's one of the prophets. And indeed, he was a prophet. <laughs> but not like the prophets of old. One who was greater than the prophets of old. So, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Opinions were divided. 2,000 years later, opinions are still divided. Some say, well, he was a good man, and he was. Some say he was an exemplar, someone who set a perfect example of manhood, and he certainly did that. Some say he was a holy man, and for sure, he was holy. People who believe in esoteric religions like New Age, say he was an ascendant master, someone who spiritually had climbed the ladder of success spiritually as it were and became a great teacher and great master. Some say he was simply a man who became a god. Some say, though, that he was just a man who was deluded. Uh, he had a messianic complex and he surrounded them with acolytes who were yes-men, who did whatever he wanted, kind of like a cult leader. And some say it was simply just a myth or a fable. And so as far as the world is concerned, opinions are divided. Everything from just a myth and a fable to a great prophet. But then Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks the question, and the question he asked them is the question he asks us today. But who do you say that I am? And this gets right to the very, very, very core of Christianity. There can be no greater question than this question. How we answer it, as I said, will determine our eternal destiny. Peter answers, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. What an answer. He got it right first time. 
but not by his own reasoning or logic, but by revelation from the Father God himself. Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father in heaven. This is a supernatural divine revelation. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Son of the living God. The Son of God. Jesus is the second person in the divine Godhead. Co-equal with God the Father. Co-equal with God the Holy Spirit. Now the Christian does not believe in three gods. Don't you worry about John waving around there. He's trying to fix that monitor in there for the crash, so that's why he's moving about, it's all right, so don't get distracted. I know what he's doing. I, I only get distracted if people's moving about, and I don't know why. <laughs> that troubles me. But if I know why, I'm fine, all right? Now, the Christian does not believe in three gods. We believe in one God. The Lord our God is one God, and that's what we believe. But we believe one God who manifests himself in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Don't try to figure that out. You never will. I could give you all kinds of little illustrations, but at the end of the day, you just got to accept it by faith. One day we'll understand. Right now at the minute, that's how it is. Now, the word Trinity does not appear in Scripture anywhere. But the triunity of God is everywhere in Scripture. Even at the very beginning of creation. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working in harmony even to create the very universe. And of course to create man. Let us make man in our image. And we see at Christ's baptism. How when he is being baptized in the Jordan by John, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. And the Father spoke and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now there is a, an order to the Godhead. Even though they are co-equal, and even though none is less or more important than the other, Yet there is a role, a function that each fulfills. Just the way a husband and a wife, as far as God's concerned, they are equal in His sight, but their role is different. The husband is the head. The Father is first. The Son is second. The Holy Spirit is third. Not third in less important or second less important, <laughs> all totally equal, but their role, their function is such. Are you still with me? All right. John 14, Philip said to Jesus, he said, show us the Father and it will be sufficient for us. And Jesus says, have I not been with you such a long time and yet you have not known the Father? He that has seen me has seen the Father. I am the mirror image of the Father. I do what the Father does. I say what the Father says. Want to know what the Father's like? Look at me. God is spirit. But look at me and you'll see the very essence of the Father in me. John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. One in essence. One in purpose. I and the Father are one. 1 John 5, 7. For there are three that bear witness in heaven. The Father, the Word, which is Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. Now here's a powerful, powerful scripture regarding Jesus. In Colossians 2 and 9, listen to what it says. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Think of that. All the fullness of the Godhead, all the power of the Godhead, all the creative ability of the Godhead, 
all the wisdom, all the knowledge, everything about the Godhead, beyond our capability to know even, all of it in Christ Jesus bodily. You see, when Jesus came to this earth, he did not lose his deity. He did not lose his deity. He was still God, but he was the God-man. He wasn't God who became man and lost his deity and then eventually regained his deity when he went back to heaven. No, no, no. He was God who became man, who was the God-man. And in fact, when he went back to heaven, he did not divest himself of his human body. He still has that human body. The nail prints are still in his hands and his feet and his side, and we'll see that one day. But what he did divest himself of was his rights and privileges of the Godhead. If he had a divested himself of being the Godhead, he wouldn't have been God. But it was the rights and privileges that go with being in the Godhead. For instance, did you notice how that Jesus never, when he was on earth, never acted independently of the Father? Never once. Never one time. In fact, they said, and we'll see in Scripture in a moment, in fact, they said, what I do, this is what the Father does. What I say, this is what the Father says. I do nothing of myself, he says. I only do what the Father does. I do always those things that please him. Remember how he prayed in Gethsemane for the Father's will to be done, not my will, but thine be done? It wasn't because he was no longer God, but he laid aside those rights and privileges as man. And he totally submitted himself completely and utterly to the will of the Father. Listen to what it says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, and this is the New Living Translation. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position as a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on the cross. The original language, this is the kenosis of Christ, the self-emptying of his rights and privilege, not of his deity. Else he wouldn't have been God, but his rights and privileges. To come as a man on this earth, the God-man. To take upon himself the form of a servant. And he came in the likeness of sinful man, yet without sin. This is the wonderful Jesus that we serve. The title of the message today is, Who is this man, Jesus? We're coming in now, we're in the Advent season. We're coming close to Christmas whenever our thoughts should rightly turn to him. And then here's another powerful verse. 1 Timothy 3.16 tells us there that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. You see, since the creation of the world, God had manifest himself in mighty acts and power creating this tremendous universe, creating this earth that we live in and every human being upon it. And during the time that man has been upon this earth, God has come again and again and again with mighty works and acts. This is why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 says that man is without excuse. All he's got to do is look up into the sky and see that there is a creator. So therefore he's without excuse. But rather than worship the Creator, Paul says, he turns and begins to worship the creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 it says, The Word became flesh 
and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the first time in all of human history that God manifested himself in the flesh, in his Son. This is the message of the Advent season, is it not? That God sent his Son to come as a helpless little baby. Think of it. The creator of the ends of the earth, he comes as a little dependent baby. It's a mystery and it's a marvel, isn't it? And this is why at Christmas time we should preach that message. And what we find now, of course, is <laughs> we find that Christ is being axed out of Christmas, that it's happy holidays. The governments all over are trying their best to take Christ out of the celebration of Christmas. But you know, it's satanic. Do you know that's the spirit of Antichrist? Do you know that? In 1 John chapter 4, John's first little epistle. <coughs> Believe... Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. See, this is why I say that this is the most profound, the most important question. Who is this man Jesus? Who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? It's very, very important. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's turn to John chapter 5, John's Gospel chapter 5. And let's see some, again, very powerful statements about Jesus. Jesus had just healed the, the man at the pool of Bethesda who had lain there for 38 years. And of course, he healed on the Sabbath and the religious crowd didn't like that. In verse 16, it says, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. He did that several times. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son of the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For the Father raises the dead and gives life to them. Even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son that all should honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. 
I can do nothing of myself as I hear a judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him, will of the Father who sent me. What a powerful statement. Did you get what Jesus has just said there? He said that all life is in my hands. All life is in my hands. As the Father has power to raise the dead, He has given me power to raise the dead. All life is in my hands. You know, when Jesus had His ministry on earth, you remember how He raised from the dead three persons. Remember the little girl, the 12-year-old, Jairus' daughter, who just had died? He raised her from the dead. And then that widow who was burying his, her only son, who was on her way to the cemetery, and Jesus stopped the funeral procession and touched the bier, the pallet where he laid, and immediately he was raised from the dead. And then Lazarus, who had been in the grave four days already, by this time he stinks, his sister said. Corruption had come in, and Jesus yet raised him from the dead. All life is in his hands. Every human being that has ever lived from Adam onwards, one day Christ will raise everyone who has died to Adam. Christ will raise them from the dead in an instant. Such is his power, such is the power of the resurrection that he has got. He said to Mary and Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die eternally, that means. There's a day coming when this Jesus, this man Jesus, will raise the dead. And they'll come out of their graves. Some will still be lying in a funeral parlor and they'll come out of that box. Some will have been buried at sea and they'll come out of that sea. Some has been buried in tombs for centuries, millennia, and they'll come out of those tombs in an instant. Such is the power that Christ has got that all life is in his hands. Your life, my life, is in his hands. <clears throat> and if he doesn't come for us and we go the way of all flesh, we have got the assurance and the comfort and the hope that one day he will raise us up from the dead too. Glory to God. Then it says that all judgment is in his hands. Hebrews 9.27 It's appointed unto a man once to die and after this, the judgment. You know, Jesus right now is offering grace and mercy and forgiveness. And all we've got to do is receive that and accept Him and accept His pardon for our sins. But if we do not, one day he will be our judge. One day he will raise us from the dead and will either be raised to the resurrection of the just or the resurrection of the unjust. The resurrection to life or the resurrection to condemnation. And he will be the judge. All judgment is given into his hands. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, In verse 9 it says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to, all, according to what He has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men that we are well known to God, and I trust 
are well known in your consciences. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Believers in the resurrection of the just will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Not to be condemned, because we're already saved. We're not under any condemnation. Those who are in Christ are no longer under any condemnation. But to receive for the deeds we have done in the body. From the moment you get saved, from that point onwards, till you stand before Jesus, a record will be taken of the deeds done in the body. And depending what we have done and our motivation for doing it, then we receive rewards for that. I don't know about you, but I want and I hope that I get rewards and I hope that I've done something that is rewardable in this life for Christ. Don't you? Let's take that a little bit further. 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers. You're God's field, you're God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and other builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So in other words... That which we are doing right now for the kingdom of God will be tried and will be tested. And if our motivation has been right, and if we've done it for the right reasons and the right way, God will reward it. But if not, it will be burned up as wood, hay, and stubble. But we'll be saved. But there'll be no reward for that. Are you still with me? All judgment is in His hands. But what about those who have made no profession of faith in Christ? What judgment will they receive? Well, Revelation 20 tells us very clearly. <coughs> Revelation 20, verse 11. When I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades, death and hell were delivered, sorry, death and hell delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That is a frightening, scary thought, is it not? Hmm? It really is. It is a fearful thing, the Bible says, to fall into the hands of a living God. Here is Jesus, our judge. What is man going to say on that day? I think it would be speechless. 
I, I haven't time this morning, but I, I feel soon I'm going to preach in that particular portion about the great white throne of judgment. There's much in that that we need to know. But all judgment has been given in, given into Jesus' hands. And then Jesus, again in John 1, Jesus is the creator of all things. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. Do you understand that Jesus is the creator of everything? Think of the power. Think of the creative ability. Think of the wisdom in creation. All of it was done by Jesus. It is reckoned that there is somewhere between 100 and 200 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy. And there are billions of galaxies with untold billions of stars and every single one of them was made by Jesus Christ. Every one of them. I love the, the way this is understated in Genesis chapter 1 when it's talking about creation. And in Genesis chapter 1 verse 16, if you just mark it and read it later, it says, and he made the stars also. It's a kind of a little, almost a throwaway line. Oh, by the way, he made the stars also. What? The stars? The billions and billions and billions of stars? Oh, yeah, he just, he made them also. Hmm. Psalm 19 is a lovely psalm. It's in keeping with what we're saying right now. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone through all the earth to their worlds and to the end of the world. In them He has set a tabernacle for the sun which is like a bridegroom coming out of His chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. And rising, its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end. How did he know that the sun has a circuit? How did he know that? By inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Huh. September the 5th, 1977. The Jet Propulsion Agency in Pasadena, California sent two spacecraft, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, into space, into what was deemed impossible, 1977. No craft had ever been made that would go as far as these two. In fact, as I'm speaking right now, both of them, both of them are operational. Both of them are up there, out there somewhere. And they're still going to this day. They're so far away that the, the messages they send back takes 15 hours to reach us. And the plan was that Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 would go out to those two great gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn, which they did, and sent back photographs that had never been seen by human eyes before. And astronomers and physicists had to rewrite all their theories about Jupiter and Saturn because now they're seeing it close up. And then Voyager 2 was to, in a kind of a big slingshot of gravity, was to take off for the two great coal gas giants of Uranus and Neptune. And it did. And again, sent back photographs which were astounding. Amazing. Voyager 1, after it had examined uh, Titan, satellite, Saturn, then it would be 
set off in a trajectory right into interplanetary space within our solar system. And today, right now, as I speak, it has traveled 35 years at 38,000 miles an hour and it has covered 11 billion miles. And just now, right now, it has just reached the edge of our solar system. When a says reached the edge of our solar system, you know that the sun is the center of this solar system with all the, the eight planets whirling around it. And the sun emits a solar wind, hot ionized gases, plasma, that speeds out at millions of miles an hour into the far reaches of the sun's solar system. And those charged particles now have got to the place where they have dissipated to the point where they reckon they're no longer influencing. They've come to the edge of the solar system. And so Voyager 1 is about now to go into interstellar space between stars. And it's reckoned that even at that incredible speed, it's going to take another 40,000 years to reach the star in line with the trajectory it's pointed in. That's only the nearest one to it. Why did I tell you that? Because Jesus made all of that. He made all of that. Now, for those of you who are computer geeks, you might want to know that the processing power of the Voyager spacecraft altogether was 68 kilobytes. <laughs> Not megabytes or gigabytes or terabytes, kilobytes. Incredible. Still going to this day. Psalm 147, verse 4, he counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. All those billions upon billions upon billions, he made them, he numbered them, and he calls them by name. We look up and see Cassiopeia, that constellation. wonder what he calls it. We see Arcturus. wonder what he calls it. We see the polar star, the north star. wonder what he calls it. He's got a name for every single one of them. Now, as well as the vastness of that macro world and universe that he's made, he's also made a very intricate micro world. Hang on to your hat a moment, all right? I know you ladies had a long night last night and you're very tired, all right? But this is Jesus who made this. Imagine one single drop of water. That little drop at the end of my finger, look. If all the molecules in that one single drop of water were grains of sand, you could make enough concrete to build a roadway half a mile wide, one foot deep, all the way from New York to San Francisco. <laughs> so obviously they're very, very small, aren't they? They're very, very tiny. So as well as the vastness and the immensity of up there and out there, right at our fingertips, there's this micro-world. Let me put that another way. A molecule, a very small thing, comes from the Latin meaning little mass. And it is a little mass. Bill Bryson, in one of his books, a particular chapter called The Mighty Atom, he describes it. A molecule is simply two or more atoms working together in a stable arrangement. Take two atoms of hydrogen, one atom of oxygen, and you've got a molecule. 
of water. Now, I went to great lengths to get this this morning. It's a sugar cube. David, could you get a close-up on that at all? It's a sugar cube. It's about one cubic centimeter. All right? Very small. If that was a cubic centimeter of air, and if we were at sea level, and if the temperature was zero degrees Celsius, how many molecules do you think would be in that little space there? 45 billion, billion molecules. How many sugar lumps would it take to fill this building? Multiply that by 45 billion, billion. How many sugar lumps would it take to fill this universe? And every single molecule and every single atom was made by Jesus. That's amazing, isn't it? In case you're wondering, that's what you're made of, not sugar lumps. Some of these are sweet enough. But the molecules, of atoms, arranged creatively, amazingly, by our Creator, Jesus. <laughs> He's Savior. He's Creator. If you were to stand half a million atoms shoulder by shoulder, line them up, you could hide them behind a human hair. And inside every atom, there's a nucleus. And there's electrons and protons and neutrons. It's like a universe within itself. And every single part of it was made by Jesus. Did I tell you about chromosomes? Did I tell you about that recently? No. I said it somewhere, but it wasn't in here. See, I, I fail to understand how people can not believe in God. I really honestly fail to understand how they cannot believe in a creator God. In a fertilized human egg, there's 46 chromosomes, 23 from your father, 23 from your mother. <coughs> One of your chromosomes within it has got DNA. It's called the most extraordinary chemical on earth. If you were to stretch a strand of it out, it would stand about two meters long. It's got 3.2 billion letters or coding that has got every single facet of your human body in that blueprint. Color of your eyes, color of your hair, the size of your nose, your ears, your feet, your hands, pigmentation of your skin, all of it is contained in that one strand of DNA. <laughs> You've got over 20 million kilometers of DNA all wrapped up in your body. And every single part of it contains every detail of your human body. Don't tell me God didn't do that. Don't tell me that just happened. That was just per chance, happenstance, luck, evolution, call it what you will. That was Jesus who did that. You're fearfully and you're wonderfully made, the Bible says. Just one of your chromosomes contains enough information which is the equivalent to 500 million words. You say, what in the world, David, does that mean? Okay, there's a book. It doesn't matter what the book is. It's just a book. It's got about 230 pages. You would need 5,500 of those books to have the equivalent information of just one of your chromosomes and you've got 46 of them. You need a quarter of a million of those books. That's a lot of books, isn't it? That's a lot of info. Just to be the equivalent of your chromosomes. And to say there is no God and there is no creator. That it all just happened. Baloney. Jesus is the one who made it. He's the Son of God. Who do you say that I am 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Isaiah 9 and 7, as we close, we're speaking of the one who is called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Aren't you glad that you know Jesus today? Aren't you glad that he is the one who's taken care of your life today? Aren't you glad that you're held in his hand? I watched a program last night when that Voyager, uh, Voyager 1, before they turned off its cameras to save energy, before they did that, they got it to turn around and to take one last photograph of all of the planets from billions of miles. And there's that little tiny blue dot called Earth. And I thought to myself, if God can't take care of that, there's no hope for me. If God can't take care of that little blue dot in the vastness of that space, there's just no hope for me. But thank God, not only can he take care of it, he knows every single detail of it. And every detail of your life today is in his hands. Amen. Aren't you glad you know him today? Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice, not just that you are our creator, but you are our redeemer, our savior. Not just because you made this world, but because you came into it. And you came and you gave your life for us. We thank you, Lord, that you laid aside those rights and privileges. And you became a man. And we thank you that you came as a man to save men. And you went to the cross as the Lamb of God who died to take away the sins of the world. And so we give you thanks for who you are today. We bless you that you are our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we glorify you. Tony's going to come and just...